0: I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Ephesians in chapter 5. If you'd like to use the red Bibles and the chairs around you, you'll find our passage beginning at the bottom of page 978. We're going to be looking today uh, where we left off last week, so we'll be Ephesians 5 and I'm going to begin reading in verse 21 down through the end of the chapter. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, see that she respects her husband let's pray together our father we as we so often do come before you and thank you for giving us your word and although it was written so long ago to people very far away in a culture that seems very distant from ours we we know that you have given your word in such a way that we have it today and that there are things that we need to understand and things we need to apply into our lives as a result. We pray that you would be with us, opening our hearts and our minds to see these things, to understand them, and to have the wisdom and the strength and the courage to live as you call us to live as your people. Would you do this, Father, because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As a pastor, one of The things in ministry that brings the greatest of joys as well as the greatest of disappointments is being able to do marriage counseling. It's great joy and encouragement as you sit down with a couple who are in some kind of difficulty and see how the Lord is at work in their midst, bringing healing and strengthening Uh, maturing them in their faith and causing their love for each other to grow and to thrive and to flourish. But it also is a source of great discouragement and disappointment when you see little or no progress happening in their relationship or perhaps even greater despair and even sometimes leading to divorce. Marriage is really hard. It's really challenging. But isn't it good to know That that's nothing new. Paul was writing this letter a long time ago to people very far away. And in the context of writing to this church in Ephesus and to the Christians in that surrounding area, he included what ends up being one of the longest and most detailed descriptions and treatises about marriage that we have in the entire Bible. But still, there are many questions. Even about this own passage and what Paul is saying, what it means, what it doesn't mean, and how we're supposed to apply these principles in our lives. A pastor friend of mine tells the story of a time when a young couple in his congregation came to him because they needed some counseling. Their, their marriage was starting to uh, come apart and they didn't really understand what was happening and they needed some help. And so they sat down with the pastor and he began to ask them all the normal questions that he asked to try to discern what exactly is happening. Eventually, he realized he didn't really see what the trouble was, what the problem was. And so he turned to the young husband and he said, what's your perspective on what the problem is? The young man said, said, well, we're, we're both Christians. We're, we're both committed believers to the Lord Jesus Christ. We both have grown up in solid Christian families. We both have been taught what the Bible says about how we are supposed to live as husbands and wives. And as a husband, I seek to, to apply that. I seek to be a good husband, a good head to my family. The pastor said, well, tell me what that looks like. And this is what the father, or what the husband said. In order to make sure that there's no question about who is the head of our home, I try to make sure that both my wife and I let Scripture rule our actions. For instance, if I come home from work and I'm trying to relax by watching TV or reading the paper, my wife may ask me for some help with something in the kitchen or with the kids. They had three preschoolers, two of which were twins. To make sure, he says, that we both know who is the head of the house, I flip a coin. If it comes up heads, I help. If it comes up tails, I don't. That way, there's no question about who is in charge. Now, My pastor friend said that at that that moment the light bulb went on and he started to see... (laughs) where some of the problems were in this relationship. And as he began to talk more with them, he saw more of these similar kinds of problems. There is, there is so much in Ephesians 5 that we need to understand and believe and apply. And yet there is so much misunderstanding of how we apply these biblical principles into our lives as husbands and wa- and wives. And I'll say to you this morning, one sermon is not going to do it justice today. So what I want us to do is to try to have a high flyover of what Paul is saying here. To try to get the the overreaching concepts, the principles that, that Paul is speaking about, and what difference that ought to make for us in our lives. So we're going to look, first of all, at the picture that Paul tells us about that marriage points to. Secondly, we'll look at the plan that he gives both husbands and wives for how they are to live biblically in their relationship. And then lastly, we'll talk about the power that we need to, to live and to thrive both in marriage and in singleness. So first of all, the picture of marriage that Paul gives us. In his instructions to the husbands in verse 25 and through 27, look at what he says. Look at the picture that he gives. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And then in verse 32, he says, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The picture that Paul is pointing, the picture that he's giving to us is a picture of marriage that points to the greatest love story ever. It is the picture of God's persistent, pursuing, unrelenting, redeeming love for his bride, his people. In the Old Testament, God spoke of himself as the husband, as the the heavenly husband and his people as his bride. We saw that already in the passage from Hosea, in the passage from Jeremiah. And in the New Testament, we read over and over again here and in other passages where Jesus calls himself the bridegroom and his people his bride. It's the same message throughout the entire Bible. The entire Bible is the story of God's love and God's pursuit of his people as their husband and they as his wife. He is the bridegroom and we as the bride. God gave us this Idea of marriage, this concept of marriage, this institution of marriage as a picture of his loving relationship with his people. And that's why Paul says it is a profound mystery. Because when did God institute marriage? All the way back in the Garden of Eden, before the fall. Even before the fall, God was giving us this picture of his redeeming love for us as his bride that's why it's a mystery why it's a profound mystery one commentator has referred to the idea of marriage as a gospel reenactment as husbands and wives function as they are intended to they serve as a picture as a reenactment of the gospel of god's grace and mercy to us as we reenact the gospel through our relationship and through our marriage how well, there are probably lots of ways, but let me give you just two. We show each other forgiveness as two broken, sinful people come to become one flesh. They hurt one another, they sin against one another. And when they do, if they are they are serving as husbands and wives as intended, they would move toward one another, not away from one another, seeking to confess their sins, seeking to repent and turn away from their sins and to get forgiveness and to give forgiveness. As we experience the free grace and the forgiveness of our Lord, we then extend it to our spouses in an unconditional love. And as we do that, we are, we are reenacting the gospel. We are reenacting that, that wonderful, saving love of our Savior for us. There's another way that it is a reenactment of the gospel, and that is in transformation. Not simply in forgiveness, but in transformation. Just as our lives are changed by the gospel, when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we embraced and trust Him, God says, I will not leave you like you are. I will send my spirit into your life and I will change you. I will form you. I will fashion you into the person that you are designed to be. And so as we get together with a husband or a wife, it's between two imperfect people. And God uses our marriage as a tool to form And to shape us into the people that He desires and delights for us to be. It is two people, a man and a woman, who come together needing sanctification. They need to grow and mature and become the people God intended. And marriage is one of the ways that God uses to get us to that place. Now, before we move on to think about another way that we see a picture of marriage here and God's wonderful love for His people, let me just stop for a second and draw out a couple implications. When we're looking for a spouse, it means that we're looking for someone who isn't finished, who isn't complete yet. That as we look for a husband or a wife, we're looking for someone that we desire to spend the rest of our lives reenacting the gospel with expressing forgiveness and giving forgiveness and granting forgiveness asking for forgiveness and being a part of what God is doing in transforming us into the people that he desires us to be but it also means this that when we get married we should expect confrontation if God uses marriage to form and to shape us into the people that we need to be and that we are designed to be, and he will change us through that process, it is going to necessitate confrontation. There's another aspect here about how God gives us this picture of marriage as a picture of his loving relationship for his people. And it's the idea of, uh, that is woven all throughout this passage of the idea of a covenant commitment. The language of of covenant, covenant language is everywhere here in this passage. In verse 31, Paul quotes from Genesis 2, verse 24. That's the place in the scriptures where God is making a covenant with Adam and Eve before the fall. He is covenanting himself to be their God and for them to be his people. And even the verse that he quotes in verse uh, verse 31, he's quoting Genesis 2 verse 24, where he says that a, a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. That word hold fast is covenantal language. It means to cleave, to cling to, to be joined to. And even the example that Paul is giving us of marriage being a picture of Christ's love for and work for the church. It's that idea of the covenant of grace that God has covenanted the father with the son to redeem his people through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The language of covenant is woven throughout this entire passage. Legal, personal binding of one person to another. A binding commitment. God made a binding commitment to Adam and Eve and to all that they represented in the covenant of works. The father made a covenant with the son and all that he represented in the covenant of grace. And a husband and wife come together in a marriage covenant, leaving their families of origin and cleaving and holding fast to one another. And this idea of of marriage as being a covenant commitment has tremendous implications. One pastor put it this way, marriage is not primarily a declaration of current love, although that is important, but more so it is a binding promise and commitment of future love, a promise to love regardless of circumstances. The instructions that Paul gives to wives and to husbands are not contingent on the spouse's response. Marriage has never been primarily about my own personal fulfillment or my own needs being met or how I am getting blessed, although those things are wonderful things that the Lord does in a marriage. The covenant of marriage means I am committed to love and to serve my spouse regardless of what I get in response. That's the idea of a covenant. A long time ago, I had someone tell me, If my wife can't tell me that she loves me, then I can't and I won't stay with her. When I heard that, it took the wind out of my sails. It's a crushing comment. In essence, what that person was saying is, my willingness to stay in this relationship is based on what I get out of it. It's not the mindset of of a covenant commitment. It's the mindset of consumerism. I'm in this relationship as long as I get what I want and I need out of it. That is not the message of Hosea. That is not the message of Ephesians 5. That is not the message of our heavenly husband and how he pursues us as his bride. That's the picture that Paul gives us. Marriage is a picture of... Of Christ's love for the church, of God's love for his people. What's the plan that he gives both husbands and wives in these verses for how they are to live out that principle in their lives? What are the instructions, the roles, and responsibilities for husbands and wives in marriage? Before we dive into those, he'll give some both to wives and to husbands. Before we dive into those, I want to take just a moment and say a couple things about what Paul is not saying in this passage. Paul is not saying that women are inferior, of less worth, of less value, or dignity. Men and women are made in the image of our Creator. And they have value and dignity and significance because of that fact. Paul is not saying that women are weak and incompetent, And not as smart as men. I think we know many ways that women are stronger and more wise than men. Paul is not saying that husbands should not listen or get counsel or get input from their wives. A husband who uses Ephesians 5 to say that he shouldn't listen to his wife does so at his own peril. Paul is not saying that abuse of any kind is legitimate. A husband who uses Ephesians 5 to abuse his wife verbally, emotionally, physically, or in any other way is outright evil. And it must never be tolerated or accepted or ignored. Paul is not saying that every woman must submit to every man. Paul has a very specific context that he is speaking about in these verses. It is the context of marriage. He's not talking about every single other relationship in the workplace or otherwise. And Paul is not saying nothing. He is saying something in these verses. So what is it that he's saying? He speaks first to the wife in verse 22. Wives, he says, submit to your own husbands. And then again in verse 33, let the wife see that she respects her husband. We talked a little bit about that word submit last week as we were finishing up the end of the section that we were covering. Talking about submitting ourselves one to another. And we talked about the fact that that word submit means to arrange under an authority. And it was often used in the first century to talk about a military situation. Soldiers arranged in rank of authority. Who would submit themselves to the authorities that had been put rightly over them. This verb that Paul is using here when he says, "submit, Wives, submit to your own husbands. It's a a, a verb that's in the middle voice. And that was often used to emphasize a voluntary nature of the word. And so what Paul is saying here is, Wives, willingly submit yourself to your husbands. It's the same word and used in the same way that Jesus used by of him submitting to the Father's will. So it's not a bad thing. It's not, it's not an oppressive thing. It's a thing that even the Lord Jesus Christ himself does with the Father. So what does that look like? What does it look like? For a wife to submit to her husband. Did you notice that Paul doesn't give us very many examples? In fact, you won't find very many specific details or examples in most of Scripture about what that principle looks like. And I think the reason why is because Paul doesn't want us to have the excuse that it was tied to a particular culture. This is a principle that he is giving us that transcends time and culture. And it has to be worked out into our particular circumstances all the time. So we come in our our lives, in in our circumstances, and we say, well, what about this situation? Or what about that situation? Or what about this particular way that we're struggling to understand? How do we apply it into our lives here and I think we need wisdom. We need, we need to pray to the Lord and ask Him to help us understand, but we also are doing it within the community of God's people. It's a very biblical concept for younger men to reach out to older men, to, to get wisdom, to ask questions. How, how are we to do this particular situation in our marriage? And for younger women to reach out to older women, to get wisdom of how to apply biblical principles into their marriages so we need one another we need to pray to the Lord to ask him to help us to understand we need one another to work out these principles into our lives but I will tell you that I do think there is one thing at least that it means for wives to be submissive to their husbands I think even just in terms of the way that the word is the 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 meaning of the word at the end of the day after husbands and wives work together, sharing perspectives and insights, seeking the Lord's will together, if nothing harmful or unbiblical is being decided, the husband has the last say. But the husband also needs to know that he will be held accountable by the Lord for his leadership in that way. What does Paul say is the reason why he calls on wives to submit themselves to their husbands? Well, look at what he says in verse 22. Submit yourselves, submit to your own husbands. How? As to the Lord, he says. And in verse 24, he says, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit. Paul's giving wives their motivation. That by submitting to their husbands in a biblical way, they're actually serving the Lord. They're loving the Lord who has died for them. Their motivation is not what they get as a result. It's not even to make their husbands happy. It is to love the Lord Jesus Christ who loves you perfectly. And that means that it's not contingent on the how the husband responds as long as it's not in a harmful or unbiblical way. The rationale that Paul gives to wives for following this biblical principle has literally nothing to do with their earthly husbands and everything to do with their heavenly husbands. So there's the principle that he gives to the wives that they should submit themselves to their husbands as the church submits itself to the Lord Jesus Christ. What does Paul give as the the plan and and the principle for husbands? Well, you probably noticed, Paul speaks a lot more to the husbands than he does the wives. Maybe a double as many words and instructions that he, gives to the wives, that he gives to the husbands. And I know that some would feel like Paul here is giving the wives the hard part and the husbands are getting off easy. I mean, the, the wives are called to submit to their husbands and the wives, or the husbands, they just have to love their wives. But I would suggest to you that if we truly understand what Paul is saying here about what it means to love, the kind of love that he's talking We wouldn't think that the husbands are getting an easy way out. Notice Paul doesn't say when he turns to the husbands, demand submission from your wives. And Paul doesn't say, exercise headship over your wife. And he doesn't say, rule over her. What does he say? Husbands, love your wives. Now, before thinking, and actually notice, he actually says that four times in three verses. He says it in verse 25. He says it twice in verse 28. And he says it again in verse 33. Love your wife. Love your wife. Now, before we think about what that looks like, first we need to see what Paul says about why. What what are the models, what are the motivations that Paul gives to husbands for loving their wives? He gives them two. The first one is in verses 25 through 27. Love your wives as Christ loves the church. In other words, what Paul is saying is, to the degree and the extent that Jesus loves his church, to that same degree, to that same extent, husbands, you are to love your wives. And by the way, what extent was that? Paul says, Jesus gave himself up for his bride. The second model that he gives or motivation that he gives for why husbands are to love their wives is in verses 28 through 30. He says you are to love your wife as you do your own body. As you take care of yourself. As you nourish yourself. So love your wife. So cherish your wife. So take care of your wife. So what does that look like? If we look at how this is being described in verses 25 and following, then what we would say is the love that Paul is calling for husbands to give to their wives, to show to their wives, to exhibit to their wives is a self-sacrificial love. Just as Jesus gave himself and died for his bride, so husbands are to sacrifice themselves, they are to die for their brides. Literally, if needed. Figuratively, every day. The life of a husband is to be sacrificial. It is to put the needs of the wife before himself. It is to so love his wife that he desires for her best, first and foremost. It is a love that is driven by a vision of a wife standing before Jesus, holy and without blemish and full splendor and beauty. You see that beautiful picture that he gives of how Christ has loved his bride. And he's certainly speaking first and foremost about how Jesus Christ himself as the Savior gives himself to make his people shine with splendor and beauty before God what he's giving us is an example of the kind of love that a husband is to have for a wife. It is as if we would picture our wives at the end of their life before the Savior and say, here is this beautiful sanctified bride. The work and the love of the husband is to see the wife growing in sanctification and holiness like Jesus' love for the church, a husband's love is to be radically generous and persistent and persevering and sacrificing. It is a love that is not contingent on a particular response, it is an unconditional love. Can you imagine what it would be like if Jesus' love for you was contingent on your response to him? Thanks be to God that it's not. And we're being told, husbands, it's that same kind of love that you love your wives with. It is a love that never uses headship or authority for their own benefit or pleasure, but for the sake, the well-being, the glory of the wife. I do premarital counseling, uh, a couple that are preparing to get married, we go over many of these same concepts that Paul is talking about here in Ephesians 5. And usually at some point as we uh, talk about these things, I'll usually stop what we're talking about and I'll just look at the couple, literally look them in the eye and just, just say, are you sure you want to do this? This is what you're signing up for. Are you really sure that you want to do this? And just like some of you, there will be a smile on their faces. And I tell them, I'm mostly being serious. This is what we're signing up for as husbands and, and wives. These are the roles, these are the responsibilities that are given to spouses in their marriage. And notice, the principles that Paul is talking about here are timeless. Because what does Paul anchor his teaching in? He doesn't anchor it in the cultural norms and expectations of first century Middle East. When he goes to anchor, where does he go? He goes to Genesis. He goes to to the very beginning of creation itself. And even beyond that, he he connects it with Christ's love for the church, which we're told happened before the foundation of the world. Paul is anchoring his instructions for wives and for husbands, not in some particular culture, but on the very nature and character of God himself. So we know that what Paul is saying here goes for all of us at any time in history. Do you feel the weight of this? Do you do you feel the weight of the roles and the responsibilities and the expectations? Who can ever live up to this standard? Are husbands and wives just simply doomed to fail miserably in how we're called to live? Where's the power? What power is there that could give us strength and motivation to live like this? I think the key is in verse 21. As we talked about last week, verse 21 is the final Phrase the final clause in a long sentence. If you go back up to verse 18, you will be reminded, at the end of verse 18, Paul is talking about what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then in verses 19 and 20 and 21, he starts to unpack what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit. One thing it means is that we sing to each other, a horizontal singing of the truth. Another thing is that we we sing melody. We sing praise to God, a vertical singing. Another thing is that we are giving thanks for all things and all ways. And then he has verse 21. Another part of what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit is that we are submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And I know that in most of your Bibles that you're looking at right now, there's a separate heading there in between verses 21 and 22. And it makes us think, because that's not in the original language, it makes us think that Paul is changing subjects and he's now talking about something new. But we know that that's not the fact. And one of the reasons why we know that is because in verse 22 when our English translations say wives submit to your husbands that word submit that verb is not there in the Greek in verse 22. It comes from verse 21. It's as if what Paul is saying here in verse 21 is we are to be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ wives. To your own husbands as to the Lord. Paul's not changing subjects. He's talking the very same thing he was before. What it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so let me ask you, who is it that gets filled with the Holy Spirit? It is those who have been united to Jesus by faith. It is those who have heard and believed the gospel of grace, who have been redeemed and reconciled to the Father through the life and the work of the Savior. It is those who have been loved from before the foundation of the world and experienced that love through the life and death and resurrection and ascension of our husband Jesus. It is only as we know and experience God's love for us personally that we will have the power and the strength To do what Paul is saying here about how we are to live in our marriages. We need to understand first and foremost how Jesus is the ultimate and perfect spouse for us. How he perfectly and willingly submitted himself to the will of the Father. And how he perfectly and faithfully loves his bride, the church. That in the midst of our unfaithfulness to him, he is perfectly faithful to us. That when we are selfishly pursuing our own desires and pleasures, he faithfully sacrifices himself for us and lays down his life for his bride. And brothers and sisters in Christ, the more that we are gripped by that truth of Jesus being the ultimate spouse for us, the more we will be empowered to follow what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 5. Can I give you just an example of... How, how personally in my own life I wrestle with this. And you don't have to take my word for it. You can ask my bride, Stephanie. This is very much a work in progress. One of my besetting sins in my relationship with my bride, Stephanie, is being impatient. And And it works itself out in lots of ways. Sometimes I get angry. Sometimes I don't listen. Sometimes I'm not kind and gentle how I respond to Stephanie. But do you see that in those moments when I react that way, I am not comprehending and believing Jesus and the gospel of grace. How patient has Jesus been with me? I can be patient with my wife. The gospel has to grip our minds and our hearts and our lives in such a way that we are satisfied and content with the love of Jesus as our greatest and ultimate spouse. And as it grips our hearts, we will be truly able to thrive in our marriage and in singleness. We won't look to a spouse to give us something that they're incapable of giving to us. When a spouse is not acting the way that they should, we will still love and serve them because that's what we're called to do and that's what Jesus has done for us. If we're married to an unbeliever, we will still love and serve them because Jesus did that for me. And if we're single and we're desiring to be married, which is a fine and good thing to desire, we won't be consumed and overrun by that desire. Because we know that even marriage to another human being will never fill us. It has to be the ultimate spouse. If the love of Jesus is not the center of our own lives first, if the gospel is not more important to us than a spouse, then we will have no power to live as Paul is calling us to live in our marriages. We'll be crushed under the weight of the commandments to submit and to love our wives as we are called to do. We will crush our spouses with expectations that no one can live up to. Let me finish with one final implication, particularly as thinking about the gospel needing to be the very center of our relationship. Certainly the Bible speaks about this other places as well, but I think one of the places that we can go to to understand God telling us that if we're going to marry... That we should marry in the Lord. That we should marry another believer in Christ. I think what Paul is saying here is a powerful reason for that very truth. To marry someone who actually believes the gospel. That desires to grow in their understanding of the breadth and the depth and the height of the love of Jesus for them. And I realize how hard it can be. How tempting it can be to get into a serious relationship or even marriage with someone who has so many good qualities but is not a believer. But I hope that if the Bible's warnings and other places against that idea don't grip you, hopefully what Paul's saying here will. Marriage is so challenging, which is why the gospel of grace, the love of Jesus, is designed to be at the very core of it. This is the picture that Paul is giving us of marriage. God's steadfast love for his people. It's a reenactment of the gospel. It is a covenant commitment. This is God's plan for marriage as he gives it to the Ephesians. Wives are to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And the power that we need for thriving in our marriages and in singleness comes as we have Jesus as our ultimate spouse. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come before you and we pray that you would help us as we struggle and wrestle to try to apply these principles that you gave to the Ephesians and through the Apostle Paul to us as well into our lives. Father, that whether we are single or married, whether we have wonderful marriages or marriages that are hanging on by just a thread, that we would be moved and gripped by your gospel, the story of your love and pursuit of your bride, your people, that that would fully overrun our hearts and fill us. Would you do that, Father, for your glory, but also for the good of your people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. As we come to the Lord's Supper at the conclusion of our service today, it's a picture for us, it's a reminder of what Paul was saying in Ephesians 5, verses 25 and following. It's a picture of Jesus giving himself up for his bride, that he would sanctify her and cleanse her, that he would present her to himself in splendor, with no spot or wrinkle, holy and without blemish. As we come, we see the Lord's body and the Lord's blood given for us. We're reminded of that work that he did as our perfect spouse, in the love, the extent, the degree of His love for us. This table is also, in addition to being a reminder of that glorious truth, is, is a means of grace. It's a means by which the Lord strengthens our faith. It causes us to, to not only remember these wonderful truths, but as the Holy Spirit is at work taking these things and impressing it into us more and more and more that we would really believe and be gripped by the wonderful truth of the gospel that we would have our faith strengthened. That as we come with faith, as we come in faith, as we come by faith, even a faith that is small and struggling, but a faith that is genuine, we know that the Holy Spirit is at work. Strengthening us, feeding us, and nourishing us so that we can live as he calls us to live. The den- our denomination's policy is that the table is for those who have made a public profession of their faith, their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ it doesn't have to be at this church but a church that is truly believing that the Bible is God's word and that salvation is by grace alone and so if you are one who has put your faith in Christ and you are trusting in him and you have made a public declaration of that faith then as the elements come around eat and drink be reminded of the wonderful picture that is, these things point us to and also know that as you come in faith the Holy Spirit will be at work and in whatever way he sees fit to strengthen and nourish us that we might serve him and love him this week ahead. We pray let's pause for a moment and thank the Lord for giving us this table. Our Heavenly Father, we do come before you with thankful hearts, thankful that you give us these means of grace, your word, the Lord's Supper. Help us to understand who you are. Help us to understand this this picture that our marriages point to, of how, how you have loved your bride from before the foundation of the world how you sent the Lord Jesus Christ to come and to die for her. As we meditate on that reality today, Father, we pray that you would also strengthen us through the work of the Holy Spirit that we might be enabled to go out and to live in the ways that Paul has called us to live. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.